ESPN Drive Time. Justin Cuthbert, Ailish Forfar, three to five on a Friday, fun Friday. Send you off to Blair and Barker, who are waiting in the wings. We saw them. They're here. They want their seat back. Talk about dedication, too. I get in here early, I thought, for our show. Blair is here. And he's already grinding. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I think he goes to the gym because I saw him with a little gym bag. Okay, there you they go. They can ask what he does because he disappeared for a bit. I wasn't able to incorporate into that into my routine no. this week. No, Getting no. to the gym pre-show was not something I was able to pull off myself. No, we loved our 5 to 7. Now we're 3 to 5. We'll be here today and all next week uh, on Sportsnet 590 The Fans. Sportsnet Now. Uh, we'll be chilling here. I think we're doing a show from the ballpark next week. We are. That'll be fun. Might be Looney Dogs Tuesday. If you know me, I'll be there crushing some nitrates after the show. And, and that's the problem. We're three to five. Like it was five to seven. You can go right into nitrates. We go I'll still go right show into to nitrates. nitrates. You have two hours to like prepare what yourself for nitrates. What do you think you nitrates. do? You you start early and stay strong consistently. You are they are they cooking Looney They'll Dogs be like cooking. immediately? Starting there at 5 p.m.? There will be Looney Dogs delivered to us on set if we're there at 5 p.m. Hmm, I was hoping I might be able to avoid having, having some, nitrates, Justin. but Trust maybe me. I'm. it's going to be unavoidable. Trust me. Um, all right, Justin and I in the seats today. We got a great show set up for you. Uh, Robert Bedauer, who will join us, sports and tennis analyst. We got this, the finals for Wimbledon set. One of them very predictable. One of them not so much on the women's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Cassidy, head coach of the Vegas Golden Knights, who just won the Stanley Cup and had his day with the Cup, sobbed out on the Cape. Talk a little bit about what that was like because that was his lifetime goal. I want to get my name on the cup. Well, it's there now. And then Ben Wagner from the ballpark will send us off into the Blue Jays returning into action tonight against the Arizona Diamondbacks back at Rogers Center. Uh, we will go through some big second half questions. We can kind of like tee that up with our text line. That's always open up 595.90. Blue Jays are about to kick off the unofficial second half of the season. What big questions do you have looming? Because there are still some. And there are still some trade rumors happening. We'll get into that with Shohei Otani. But what's your questions surrounding your Toronto Blue Jays as they kick off a second half here at the Rogers Center? And since we're soliciting questions, I think we should open this one up for the text line as well. Because we talked about it yesterday. The Edmonton Elks trending toward futility unlike we've ever really seen before. Unlike we've seen before. Certainly Mm -hmm. losing their 20th straight game at home in front of proud fans at Commonwealth Stadium. 20 straight losses. Haven't won at home since 2019. The Edmonton Elks, 20 straight losses. So we ask, because that is a sorry situation, the sorriest situation in sports that you've been a part of. We want to hear it. You got something you got something you were a part of that was particularly <laughs> gross to actually be a part of because we know being a season ticket holder for the Edmonton Elks right now, not so fun. So the sorriest situation you've been a part of when it comes to sports, text line's open for that as well. Yeah, the last time they won at home was October 12th, 2019. That's a long time. Losing at home in front of your loyal fans. You said yesterday, big, important fan base in the CFL. Well, that was it. I was all over the Hamilton Tiger Cats yesterday. You won, uh, you won the coffee purchase I, today with I, the loss I, of your bet. I lost, <laughs> I lost the coffee purchase today. Definitely had to buy the coffee today because I, I believed in the Edmonton Elks for whatever reason. Yeah, that was- uh, I, I can't even believe now after watching parts of that game, that it was a pick'em because 
it's the 19 straight losses, now 20. It showed with their performance yeah, last night. Like I'm, I think they're just so nervous now. Like, they did some I boneheaded guess. plays. Like, the, the quarterback was getting sacked, and he threw it right into the hands of the Hamilton Tiger Cats guy. who was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'll just it's, go touch this down. It was pretty nasty last night, and it's probably going to continue to be pretty nasty mm-hmm. for the Well, their next else. game, their next home game, July 29th, mark it down now against the BC Lions, who are first place in the West. So I, I I think that they will make history now. I don't think we'll get pick em odds on that one. I don't think so. Uh, send that in. Yeah, the worst sports situation, the sorriest sports situation you've ever been in. Mine's easy. When I was a part of the CWHL and it folded and we got a phone call. And it was sad because there was so much excitement. It was right after the season ended and it was a pretty good year. And I remember getting this email. It was like, hey, hello, everybody. Please join this league-wide conference call in one hour. We're like, oh, my God, amazing. It was a Sunday morning. We want to tell you how well you did I honestly year. thought they were going to expand. Like, mm. everyone was like, oh, okay, what's this? Like, let's get on the call. Like, no idea what was about to come. We get on this conference call, and they're like, hello, we regret to inform you the league is folding as of immediately. When you hang up this phone, it's over. Like, have a nice life. I, I don't even I don't even know how you what you're supposed to do. We all hung up the phone. Like now what? Right? That was the story of sports situation I've ever been in. I don't think it's uh, happened to many, but now obviously good things are happening in the women's hockey world. Maybe worth it in a sense, but that was certainly um, as bad as twenty straight home losses for the Edmonton Elks. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess it would be. I mean, I guess you went to Plan B there, broadcasting. Here we go. Yeah. I mean, it's you know. Things happen for a Still reason, to come. I suppose. <laughs> uh, I, I was. Uh, I don't have anything that obviously can uh, compete with that. I think every time I press a T into the ground, it's a pretty sorry mm, sports situation. Yeah, it's been tough for you lately. Uh, so, yeah, I think I'll go with that. I mean, I, I think people know that I have some Edmonton Oilers fandom in my blood. Mm. And I was like one of those guys who loved the Nail Yakupov pick and was forced to stand wow. by the Nail Yakupov pick. So dealing with that was a pretty sorry situation That's a name you don't hear much well. anymore, eh? No, we try to erase it from our memories. <laughs> Um, okay, so we'll take those at 590, 590. Uh, oh, got a couple in there. All right. Uh, we'll get to those. Keep them coming. Um, so we said Jays kick off unofficial second half of the season tonight. We'll tee that up with Ben Wagner to send you off to Blair and Barker later in the show. But 50 and 41 now after the All-Star break, uh, seven games back. They're in the second wild card spot. And Fangraphs, I took a look today, says projected to have 88 wins on the season and a 70% chance to make the playoffs and that's been up and that's been down, but sitting at 70. Hey, now. that's a serious improvement because we were talking about 50% about a month ago, I think. Well, so they had a better end to the first half, right? Yeah, they definitely, I mean, they play, played some decent baseball recently. Of course, you know, the Manoa thing is kind of overshadowed the recent storylines mm-hmm. and there have been ups and downs, as you mentioned, uh, but they have quietly stabilized or did quietly stabilize uh, or work towards stabilization, I guess, with the Manoa stuff. But yeah, when they were with a four-man rotation, uh, they found a way to actually improve their odds to make the postseason. Now, I understand that, you know, the Angels are part mm-hmm. of that. And other teams that aren't performing as well are a part of that uh, mathematical equation there. But 70% is better than what it was about a month ago when we were hovering around the 50% mark. Okay, so with that all being said, uh, we'll take big questions. So kick things off today, Arizona Diamondbacks, some familiar faces coming into town. We'll We'll go through that as well. Maybe there's a parlay that I put together about the revenge angle. We'll get we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but you have a big question that is kind of looming over as we start this up after a couple of days of a break. Sure. I guess my big question, and there are many questions I think that you can consider right now with the Toronto Blue Jays because they are 
they haven't proven themselves either way. They haven't proven themselves to be a postseason team. They haven't proven them themselves to not be a postseason team. They have it all to play for in the unofficial second half of the season. So there are a lot of things we can circle. I think the easy one would be Manoa. I think another easy one, hey, do you get anything from Hunjin Ryu or Chad Green? I think there are a lot of things you can pinpoint. But I think this is one we've been talking about all season. And it's related to the entire organism that is the Blue Jays right now. And that is because... It is all to play for. You have a decision at the deadline. And what do you do at the deadline? And if you decide to add at the deadline, can you do actually anything that's meaningful? Like, if you look at this prospect system, if you look at the prospect depth, the prospect quality, we've been talking about it all year. Do they have the type of pieces that could fish uh, a really, really meaningful addition? And I'm not really sure. And, And the second part of that would be, if you just tinker at the margins, if you just do a little bit, is it enough to to have any meaningful impact? Mm-hmm. Is it enough to really rationalize doing, right? Like this Blue Jays team, it feels like, yeah, you could kind of just free roll it. You go in, you try and make an impact. You're not one of the elite teams, the elite, elite, elite. You're not the Tampa Bay Rays, or at least you haven't shown to be at the start of this season so far. But if you get in, you got a chip in a chair, you got a chance, you could do what the Philadelphia Phillies did last year, which is get to a World Series when maybe they didn't expect. So I think all the options are on the table. But if you're talking about actually winning, if you're talking about being a World Series team, there are serious flaws still on this on this roster. There is a lot of room for for improvement. So I think because you have the conundrum of not having too much in the way of depth of the prospect position, but you do have meaningful holes. Can you actually cobble together a deal that is a impactful and b Mm. attainable given what you have in terms of trade chips? So my big question would be, can they make a deal that can seriously alter the DNA of this team and make it so that it can be a World Series contender? Because we know they need a bat. We know they could use some pitching help, whether it's in the starting rotation or the bullpen. But can you actually go out and get a difference maker given what you have in terms of currency? I think it feels a little bit less promising just because we spent this whole season talking about the lack of cupboards that the Blue Jays do have. Lack of, no, they got cupboards. They're well, just empty cupboards. They're empty. Um, but think about it in this sense, too. Is There's still about three weeks until the trade deadline, um, August 1st here. So we have a little bit of time. But Hunjun Ryu, Chad Green, and Alec Manoa all on the horizon. I wonder how much that seems like a, you know, like a trade deadline boost in a sense, right? You get those sure. guys back, whether they're the same level of, of pitching caliber that they had been before, that can feel like, a boost that the Blue Jays really do need. Like, they need that they really need that. I mean, it's super easy to state that. A big question I have, obviously, is what, what Alec Manoa are we getting for the second half of the season? If it's Alec Manoa as a fifth starter, are you okay with that? Yeah, sh- sure. I, I guess I'd rather that than have FCL, Florida Complex League, Alec Manoa. Where's Hanjun Ryu in his ramp-up period? I just saw, um, I think it was Arden Zwellen just... He's working out today. Yeah, he just posted right now that he's already on, that Hunjin Ryu is out, out at Rogers Center throwing on the field. Like, he seems like his his return might be even before the trade deadline or around the trade deadline. So, like, let's pretend that's a free trade deadline acquisition. Those two guys and maybe Chad Green. That might be able to change your perspective of not needing to bolster in a starting lineup, but focus on a bat and the bullpen. Mm-hmm. It's still doable. I did see some names getting floated out today about Blue Jays, like, having interest in, in people. Nothing that I'm, like... Oh, circle that as like the the fix for the Blue Jays. But you look at the Orioles, they are so good and they're going to be so good for so long and they have all that 
cupboard space that is full. No, they have no cupboard space. Yeah, they got, they all, have so they got much, all the non-perishables and they just can, they oozing can, out. They could decide to go, to go more all in yeah, even at this trade de- deadline. So I think that the, the big questions will be, and we'll continue to just tee that up for the next couple of weeks, about what the Blue Jays can do and what they want to do because they could push their cards into the middle. Like Matt Chapman is someone that we talked about what's next for him. Like you might lose him this off season. So sure. do you, do you see this as a window that is closing? We've talked to John Morosi on our morning show before. And I remember one comment he made, and I think, I think we tweeted it out and got people a little bit anxious, but he had said something. And this was when the Blue Jays were in a little bit of a worse position. So keep that in mind. Like maybe the Blue Jays window has closed before it had even felt like it had been blown wide open. And when mm-hmm. he said that, I was like, okay, did they miss an opportunity? Now things might have stabilized a bit more. And if Vladdy comes back in the second half and plays more Vladdy-esque, we might be in a different boat. But- and, and, I, and I think that that point and when it's closing before it actually opened is not because the Blue Jays mishandled something. And they may have. You can make that argument for sure that they've mishandled things along the way here. But his point was that other people's windows are so wide open. Like the Baltimore Orioles. Like, like just, the Baltimore Orioles. If you just use them as an, ex- an example, it's, it's enviable. That, exactly. So your, your window is not just affected by what you're doing. It's what other people or mm-hmm. other teams are doing clearly. And that's kind of my point here. Like, can they go into the marketplace? Let's say there's one or two premium bats out there that everyone knows is available that could be had for the right price or the highest bidder. Can the Blue Jays enter that marketplace and actually expect to get anyone? I, I don't it know if they can because way. they if the, the, if they want the same bat as the Baltimore Orioles, chances are the Blue Jays are not getting that bat, mm-hmm. right? Because the Baltimore Orioles just have way more to offer. So I, I feel like that makes it a little bit more difficult. However, you bring up a great point. With three potential arms, if you want to include Manoa in that or not, whatever. They're getting what they didn't have a month ago, they may have in a month an abundance of. With Hunjin Ryu potentially being an option, Chad Green potentially being an option, mm-hmm. and Alec Manoa stabilizing this rotation. So if you have those three arms, if you have two of those arms, or you just have Alec Manoa return to what he was, then maybe it makes your decision easier where you want to go. I think it really will. And maybe they can sniff around and just, you know, make a couple economical ads. And I said, maybe the margins are good enough, but maybe there is a bat who just shows up on the mm-hmm. radar late and you can scoop him up for a decent price and they could be slotted in the middle of the order and give you at least a different look, something that is more specialized against lefty-righty, whatever, something to improve this team offensively because in addition to the pitching troubles that have been, I guess, spawned exclusively through Alec Manoa's first start of this or first half of the season. Uh, the biggest issue I think right now with this team is that it's probably not good enough offensively to do damage in the playoffs. Yeah, I think we can put together a wish list. I feel like most people would start with, yeah, a power bat, an offensive, proven offensive piece. A Teoscar Hernandez type. Hey, I've heard of him. I think a big question that many people are going to have when we when we circle like what's next for the Toronto Blue Jays is which Vladimir Guerrero Jr. you're going to get, right? Well, which Alec Manoa are you going to get? You can say the same thing for one of your young superstars that hasn't been the level of Vladdy that we had seen previously, so much so that we've had questions of which Vladdy is actually Vladdy. You know, the, the 2019 season where he had these extraordinary numbers we have had gotten into conversations where it's like, oh, those were overinflated because they were playing in a fake ballpark and this and this and this, and that's actually a blip. And, I mean, it could be. I think that there's a maybe meet in the middle. Maybe there's a, a an enhanced Vladdy that we can see in the second half. We're going to have the conversation. If he hits a home run tonight, it's going to be wild. People are going to say, 
oh, the home run derby really unlocked something for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I'm going to say that. I can't mm-hmm. wait to get on Twitter if he hits a home run tonight and, and throw a hot take that he's back. Put money on Vladdy All-Star um, MVP. Like, it's it's funny, but it also is going to be interesting because Vladdy just had a very positive experience. He won something that's important to power hitters. It's something that's always going to be in his trophy cabinet. Does it actually mean anything? That is going to be a big question this weekend. And maybe if you're holding out hope, a little bit of a change in launch angle could fix everything. Because you know Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was hammering balls into the ground in the first half of the season. I so always maybe, look for something positive. Maybe there's something there. I'm sure we'll discuss it. I'm sure you'll cling on to it mm-hmm. uh, because you are, of course, very, very positive. I try to be. And if Vladdy does have a good start to the second half, if he does have a great weekend versus Arizona, People will be fired we up. will be circling the wagons to <laughs> yeah. try to... Monday uh, when we ass- come back on... Yeah. If he's got two dingers this weekend at the Rogers Center, like we, I might, I'll wear a Vladdy jersey on Monday. I'll be oh, fired right we'll, up. No, we'll be telling him to be in the home run derby every single year. Okay, so more questions that I have. So we talk Alec Manoa, Hunjin Ryu, and Chad Green. Those are those are pending acquisitions in a sense for the Toronto Blue Jays. Well, Kevin Gosman has certainly been in the AL Cy Young conversation all season long. Can he sustain that? I really have a high level of confidence that um, Kevin Gosman will be a nice, steady, positive presence for this Blue Jays rotation. They have kind of uh, followed in his lead. You know, Barrios has had an incredible bounce back. He'll be starting tonight, by the way. Um, So we'll go through that with Ben Wagner. And even Kikuchi's made some strides. Bassett was a little bit up and down. But I still look at this this rotation with those three slash four or five with a high level of confidence. So Gosman even winning the AL Cy Young is not out of a – Realm of possibility right now. We'll see what the second half has for him. A uh, big question I still have is what is going on with Blue Jays and their AL East opponents because that is a big glaring negative from the first half. That 7-20 and 20 record is really gross, right? And they play 15 of the final 15 games of the season. 15 of 15. All 15 of their final games are against the Red Sox, Yankees, and Rays. So if it comes down to needing to go 500 or or even more in that stretch, level of confidence right now is a little bit low in how the Blue Jays play against those three opponents. So that is going to be a massive point of um, emphasis for the Blue Jays for the rest of this second half. And it is, I don't know, it's some sort of weird voodoo. <laughs> Something's going on with the AL East, but they need to right that ship because you cannot be going into those final 15 games needing to make some sort of playoff push with this level of confidence that ooh, we don't really ever beat the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't love the changes to the schedule. Let it like kind of breathe, see how it all like worked out before I made my, any like judgment on that. I wish there was more American League East games, but at least the final well, 15 you get all games, 15. <laughs> as you mentioned, that's going to decide it. So if you are putting together a schedule, uh, that is the way to make September as meaningful and as intense and pressure packed as possible and i guess the hope is because nothing as we mentioned off the top nothing is guaranteed for this Mm -hmm. blue jays team nothing is guaranteed at the deadline nothing is guaranteed in terms of intentions at the deadline this team still as we mentioned has it all to play for but if they get to a point where there's 15 games left in the schedule just american league east opponents ahead of them just teams that they're fighting for for a position in the wild card it will be a thrilling finish to the season and hopefully they got their horses there, and they're ready for it, whether it's Manoa uh, you know, solidifying himself in the mm-hmm. second half, being a guy that you can rely on the, on those spots, maybe a bolstered offense, something that we can grab, gravitate to because there are going to have to be improvements, whether it's internally or from exter- uh, external sources for this team 
to take advantage of their position because, as we mentioned in the second half, it's all to play for. They have to be better than they were in the first half for this season to end up in the way that we expected to do, which is playing meaningful games, playing playoff games, Mm -hmm. pushing for a World Series. Okay, well, Blue Jays back in action tonight. We'll tee that up with Ben Wagner and then Blair and Barker are back in the chair 5 to 7 p.m. to get you ready for first pitch. Uh, We have been taking your text line question which was, what's the sorriest sports situation you've ever been a part of? And it is blowing up. People have a lot of sad stories. Good. Uh, don't Good. <laughs> Good. We'll send you over to your Friday with sad stories. Uh, there's some really funny ones, but uh, if you send it in, we're going to read it. So hopefully it's uh, hopefully you're okay with this one going on air. Can I read you a few? Sure. Okay, so Mark from Burlington says, Hi, in another millennium when I was attending college, I played for the varsity hockey team. I joined the team when they were 3-0 and and eventually became captain of the team. We went on to lose the next 22 consecutive games and completing the season. I do not wish to embarrass the college, so I will not name names. However, I will say on a personal level, this is one of the greatest character-building opportunities I've had in my life. Best to you, Mark. Sorry, one in that vein for me. It's like we had a pretty good high school team back in the day. We had an undefeated regular season one year. Mm-hmm. Every time we played, every first playoff game we had, we lost. Did not win a single playoff game despite having good seasons, undefeated seasons. Okay. That's a sorry situation. Undefeated season, lose first game. Oh, it was just a one done. and yeah, done. Just one and done. Oh, wow. You couldn't handle the pressure, right? Eh? You bad. guys got cocky. Pretty bad. Okay, here's Marco from Bradford. Toughest loss, losing a high school hockey series to Steven Stamkos' brother, Andre, because of curfew. Community rank had a hard cutoff for the next game. We needed to win, and the game ended in a tie. Eliminated just like that. That's, that can't be, like, fair. Come on. That's pretty bush. <laughs> pretty bush. Uh, Thomas from Barrie, lifelong Ontario resident, says, the home team in the hockey capital of the world, not winning anything in the last 56 years. Hmm. Who is he talking about? Yeah, I think that's a, it is a pretty sorry situation. We have to be honest with ourselves, right? <laughs> uh, there's some good ones here. Meredith and EG, our girl Meredith. Meredith, we miss you. My sorry sports situation. Grade nine, teachers were on strike by work to reels, so no extracurriculars, no sports. My volleyball career ended there. It felt early. Everyone's got a sorry sports situation, right? They sure do. Uh, as much as we're talking about deadline for the Toronto Blue Jays, mm-hmm. we should mention this. Our buddy John Morosi reporting on MLB Network this morning that the Angels' front office will consider incoming trade inquiries for Shohei Otani. The club is not ruling out the possibility of a deadline deal, even though the standard to move Otani is extraordinarily high. Do you think? Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, this is uh, this was a thing that was uh, it was up in the air last year. Mm-hmm. It was a talking point last year, maybe more so than it was at least at this point this year. With with anything with Otani, for me, it's just I want to see it. I want to see him. I want meaningful to see him games. play. I want to see him play meaningful games. If it's with the Angels, doesn't really matter to me. But that extends too to the deadline. Like I want to see what the most premium rental asset in the history of Major League Baseball would go for. Like I want to know what the trade would look like for Shohei Otani. So as much as it's like whatever, just get mm-hmm. to playoff games for me because I we need to see Shohei Otani do this when it matters. I'm also very, very intrigued by the possibility of him moving. Don't even care where he goes. Just want to see the bounty that would have to be put out there, the clearing of the cupboards, mm-hmm. I suppose, for this guy to actually move from one team to the next. It would be fascinating to cover that story, to see that storyline uh, 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 unveil itself, to see how much it would cost to actually get Sho- Shohei Otani. It would be Remarkable. Well, in John Morosi's report, it says the team's performance over the upcoming homestand will be a big consideration in their course. Well, they play the Astros, the Yankees, and the Pirates. So 
if things go um, as they might, it feels likely that Otani might be playing for another team come the trade deadline. And I would very much like to see that. I'm in the same boat. This is a generational talent. This is like something we really haven't ever seen in baseball. And there are some comparisons, but he is he's doing it in this era that we're living in. Like I haven't seen any of these historic baseball players ever in my lifetime. I'm seeing Shohei Otani do something that someone hasn't done since 1901 every time he goes out on the baseball field. So I would like to see him playing for a team that has World Series aspirations that are within grasp because, you know, this is the time to capitalize on that. It would be absolutely absurd just to try to put together trade packages. Like if you're the Angels owner and you're like, oh, I'm gonna or the I'm gonna be the guy that trades Shohei Otani. Like think about the feeling in your gut when you're trying to trade this super generational star and you're thinking, what is he what is he even worth? How do you evaluate a guy that's a pitcher and a hitter and he's the best at both? I don't even know what would come across the table. <laughs> yeah, the stakes are like unimaginable, right? Because losing him for nothing. You th- you think about that. Just, we, we talk about Fred Van Fleet, how oh that might God. be like a good thing for the Raptors in the end. Like backwards, it might be a good thing. I don't know how you could possibly spin that forward because every time he takes a step on the baseball diamond in Anaheim, mm-hmm. He's printing money. He's like a walking billboard that's playing, playing offensively and pitching. And it's just like it is his power is almost impossible to grasp and mishandling this moment, not getting something in return, not getting an appropriate return, giving up mm-hmm. on this asset, not paying him, not having him be your face of your franchise. I mean, I just can't imagine all that needs to go into it. And that's why this report is kind of crazy to me because it's like, Oh, uh, yeah, you know, two weeks for the deadline. We'll consider it. Yeah, we'll, we'll consider. consider moving someone who is the 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 next Babe Ruth, the reincarnate of Babe Ruth. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is kind of beyond even uh, our ability to wrap our heads around it. It is so, so big, and it would be the story, maybe of the entire sports calendar, oh, yeah. if Shohei Otani moves on and bolsters a World Series-level club. It would be fascinating. So a couple weeks to trade deadline. That will be a very hot talking point moving forward. Uh, we will do our best to try to find a way to make the Blue Jays runners in the Shohei Otani Sweet Six, but I wouldn't count uh, count your chickens before they hatch. Uh, we will talk more about Canada B-ball. Basketball's um, roster was announced last night. We had Jordy Fernandez on the show before. They did announce a pretty great star-studded lineup for the FIBA World Cup. We'll get to that. Um, we will talk a little bit about a superstar who was shopping in Miami at a grocery store and went viral. I guess you can figure out who that is. But we'll take a break because we have a little tennis chat with Robert Bedauer, sports and tennis analyst. The two finals for Wimbledon are set. And in the men's brackets, Djokovic and Alcaraz. We saw the just right before we got on air, Alcaraz winning to get this one. Um, a big head-to-head against maybe a passing of the torch moment. They did match up a little earlier this year. Can Djokovic continue to hold that crown or is he passing it on to Alcaraz? We'll chat more about that with Robert Bedauer after the break on Fan Drive Time with Justin and Naylor, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. We're back on Fan Drive Time. Justin Cuthbert and Ailish for far this afternoon. Uh, the championships are set at the All England Club. Oof. It'll be Djokovic and Alcaraz in the men's final and Vondrosova and Anjabur in the women's final at Wimbledon. Looking forward to that this weekend. It is the, one of the quietest weeks in sports 
but it's a big, big week in tennis to talk about the weekend ahead and what we saw at the All England Club. Let's bring in our next guest, Robert Bedauer, Sportsnet tennis analyst. Good afternoon, Robert. How y'all doing? Yeah, pretty exciting weekend coming up. Uh, we are doing good. Yeah, it should be a good one. We were debating this a little bit before the show, uh, on the men's side at least. What's better for tennis, in your opinion? Is it Djokovic continuing his dominance, stretching this as far as he possibly can? Or is it Alcaraz just taking the torch, albeit even just momentarily? Well, they're both great stories, but I think most people would like to see Alcaraz uh, make the dent and uh, be the first player to really step up and be able to challenge what, what used to be the big three and now is really the very big one. Um, and if, there was one, if there's one player who has the tools and the fight and the athleticism to do it, it's Alcaraz. But right now, it's the biggest task in tennis because, I mean, Djokovic is so rock solid and so confident. And you know it's a massive mountain that Alcaraz is going to have to climb. But I think he's got the skills for it. Okay, so why is the appetite there for, as you put it, a dent in uh, in Djokovic's run? I mean, we generally gravitate towards uh, dominance, uh, people setting records, people doing incredible things, people extending runs of dominance beyond even what we thought is possible. So why why is there an appetite for, for Alcaraz to make this dent? Is it just because there needs to be someone, there needs to be some drama? Or is it because, you know, people just want to see... Uh, Djokovic maybe not extend this run of dominance, at least on a personal level. What do you think it is? Is it just the, the well, parody thing, or is it a Djokovic thing? It, well, both, right? So first of all, Djokovic has already broken the record, and he's going he's to win the numbers game when it comes to GOAT, right? Um, but there's no doubt, particularly at Wimbledon, that people, um, a, a lot of, there are a huge number of Fed fans in the world um, from a skill level. I'm one of them. And everybody still can't believe what happened in 2019 with two match points on Fed serve. So I think there's a little bit of that. But, but, but Djokovic has already, you know, he's already got the record in slams. And there's a sense that there's maybe a one or two more in him the way he's playing. On the other hand, Alcarez comes al- along now as a player who's, first of all, quite different than just the methodical beating that Djokovic seems to be able to administer with his resilience, both physically and mentally. He, he plays um, a great combination. He's got a little bit of Fed, right? He's got a little bit of Nadal, and he's got a little bit of Djokovic. And he's an exciting player. And so what you're not going to see is a five-hour grinding slugfest. What you're, what you're going to see, right, is puncher versus counterpuncher. Uh, the two are the best in the world right now at their respective games. Uh, there's history on the line. Um, and uh, I think everybody kind of can see that Alcaraz will be the next great number one. I, he has separated himself now from the rest of the, the, the young generation. And he's only 19, right? 20 or just about to be 20. So I think you put all that in and people go, you know, it's good for tennis to have Alcaraz be able to legitimately say number one in the world. Um and I have nothing but admiration for Djokovic. Unbelievable what he's accomplishing. And I can't believe how tough he is. I mean, how many tiebreakers has this guy won consecutively in the Grand Slam? Like 15? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just from another world. So these two matched up not too long ago, I believe, in the French Open semifinals. Um, what do you think they learned about each other? And who might get the upper edge when they head um, on Sunday to the final here, uh, where the stakes are just as high, even higher? Uh, good question. Different surface, slower, mm-hmm. um, and and Alcaraz uh, served notice that he could go toe to toe with Djokovic, which he did for two sets, and then he cramped badly. Mm-hmm. 
um, and then it was game over. And I think so. The two lessons Alcaraz takes is one, I can play with him, and I can hurt him. Two, um, I need to prepare properly and not use up too much energy, both in preparation for the next two days, nervous energy, and also just uh, be a little bit more selective as to running down every single ball because some you can let go. Because if you're going to beat Djokovic, it's going to be three to four hours. Uh, This match won't be under two hours. Mm-hmm. So he just he, he needs to learn to be a little more selective for what he goes uh, red lines on in terms of trying to make spectacular gets. Um, but also an awareness is that he does have the game to hurt Djokovic. And the faster surface benefits Alcarez as much as Djokovic is the uh, Wimbledon seven-time champion. Yeah, I was going to ask you what, what, what the conditions are. Like, Alcaraz is only 20 years old, just turned 20 years old. So if, we're, if, it's, if he's not quite ready yet to do it, if he's not quite ready to, yet to get Djokovic at Wimbledon or U.S. Open or so on and so forth, like what is the ideal scenario for Carlos Alcaraz if these two match up at a later date or when you're just like hypothesizing when this passing of the torch could happen, what situation favors Alcaraz the most and maybe... Uh, hurts Djokovic the most? Um, Alcaraz has to be the more aggressive player. He has to force the issue. The moment, it's a bit like when you watch Djokovic and Fed play, as soon as the rally started getting really long, you went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this this isn't going to go well. Um, The the points need to be shorter, dynamic, um, and Alcaraz needs to play his explosive kind of tennis. He needs to be patient, and that he's shown that he has the ground game to be patient. But he's going to have to be the aggressor and go for his shots. And he said as much in his interview after his semifinal today. And that was a pretty comprehensive beating of Medvedev, who's been playing well, 3-3-3. Three, three, and three. So that's a good sign, too, that he's going in with confidence. And he hasn't overextended himself in the matches going into the final. Uh, on the other hand, Djokovic looks rock solid, mm-hmm. right? So this is going to be a big-time heavyweight bout. Where do you see Alcaraz in five, ten years? Is it with, you know, a laundry list of titles to his name? Is he fighting it out with another uh, crop of really good players that can beat him on any day, but he can beat them on any day? Or is it sort of the divide here with maybe Djokovic moving on? Of course, it'd be a stretch to have that run of dominance be another five to ten years in, in terms of length. Would he be in Djokovic's seat? Do you see it as he is, you know, he's the next face, but is he going to be as dominant of at his as his predecessors were? Excuse me. Uh, yeah, I don't know if anybody uh, player in the next generation will be as dominant as the, the previous three. What an extraordinary run. I mean, g- the GOAT really is we have three GOATs, mm-hmm. right? Uh, one is the most skilled of all time, Roger Federer, most elegant. One is the greatest clay quarter of all time in Nadal. And one is the most resilient and mentally the toughest uh, in Djokovic. Um, so I think uh, I do in five years see uh, Alcaraz being the consistently the number one and having won the most number of slams, but not exclusively. Um, I think that uh, he's in a in a crowded field of, of very skilled young players who um, are a little psyched out when they're playing Nadal Djokovic, uh, whereas right I think it's more competitive um, because they grew up together uh, within their um, uh, you know their grouping. So I would say that. Uh, he'll right now. He looks like he'll be the number one and the most dominant, but he won't have run of the field um, like the previous three big three did. I think we're going to see more um, uh, a variety of champions on different surfaces, but he'll win the most. Okay, well he's, gonna... he's got the. Sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say because he has the most skill. There you go. Well, he's got a big opportunity on Sunday, big heavyweight uh, belt between the two of them. Uh, but on the women's side, a little bit of a different story, right? Um, well, maybe a less predictable, eye-catching final in terms of the biggest names. So how do we get to this point um, on the women's bracket? Well, on Jabir, I think the, the, the story, I mean, if she wins um, tomorrow, She'll be the first uh, North African, first Arab to win a, a Grand Slam mm-hmm. uh, single title. That's a big deal. Uh, she's also got an appealing game style and just emotionally how she handles herself. I think she, she brings the crowd into her matches. And, and she was in the final last year. She was in the U.S. Open final. So she ha- she's been right at the doorstep and hasn't been able to come, go through. So I, I think she'll be the emotional favorite. Um, and I think the experience... Uh, of last year's Wimbledon final uh, and U.S. Open will will help um, her steal her nerves in the big moments. Vondrosova, though, is a lefty, uh, which is always a bit of an advantage when playing a righty, and um, and was in a Grand Slam final herself in 2019 in the French Open. So even though her ranking's a lot lower at 45, uh, I don't think that's a realistic ranking. I think she dealt with some injuries, as Ans Jabeur has this year. But... Um, I think it's uh, Ons Jabeur's turn uh, to, to win a, a major title, and, uh, and I think it's going to be historic, uh, but it's going to be a very close match. Um, there's very little to divide between these two. Yeah, I saw that Vondrasova was the first unseeded women's finals at Wimbledon since Billie Jean King in 1963. So that storyline, I know you say maybe like unseeded in terms of has dealt with some injury and should be seated higher or ranked higher. Um, but just that storyline itself is pretty special. I mean, anything that Billie Jean King has done in the past and you being the next one in line for that type of storyline is always something I'm, I'm sure the fans will, will hold on to at least. Well, listen, and, and the Wimbledon final, it's like the holy grail mm-hmm. for tennis players. Um, and I mean, I got to play Wimbledon once, and I mean, it was just such a highlight of my tennis career. So it's magical, right? And I think that uh, you're playing a Wimbledon final, center court. Um, it's almost like um, whatever's happened up to that point, um, it's an unknown. It's an unknown for Vondrosova because she's never been in, in a, a Wimbledon final. Ons uh, Jabeur has, and that will help. Um, but it, for watching uh, Vondrosova play earlier, a couple of her matches, she got pretty tight when it got close to the end, and I think that that's something I've I'm going to look for in the final. Can she manage her nerves? Should she win the first and be in position to win? Will she be able to hold her nerves? Um, whereas Jabeur has been down that pathway. So I think that could, that could come into play. Um, I think um, the, who wins the first set doesn't matter so much. I think this one's going to go to three. So that's where it's going to be interesting. Who can hold their nerves uh, and who can maintain uh, the pressure? Because both of them are at their best when they're attacking. The contrast between the men's and women's side is is pretty undeniable right now. I mean, you got Novak Djokovic, who's uh, just extending those records, and you got him playing the next in line in Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, I don't think you could say the same for either of the two women in the final. I don't know if you could really pinpoint who might be the next dominant player in women's tennis right now. Uh, does... I mean, I guess we'll single on Jabur because uh, she's got your attention, Robert. Uh, does she have dominant upside? Can she get to the point where she's the one to beat? And if you had to choose anyone to be the one to beat over the next five years, the one that will have the target on their back uh, for the most part, is there that tennis player on the women's side? 
Yeah, no, it's, it's a wide open field. There's no doubt. Um, and we've seen that in the number of different players who've won sing, Grand Slam singles titles, including Bianca, uh, right? Adrescu, our own player, who, by the way, gave Onstruber a very tough three-set uh, match in the round of 32. Um, so th- that's good news for Bianca's level of play being much higher now, and I think she's going to challenge again. I, you know, I think Iga Swantek has certainly demonstrated that um, she's the current number one. I, I knew that grass would have been her weakest sur- surface, but she's won three French now uh, and a U.S. Open, so she separ- has separated herself from the pack, uh, but she does it through a really sort of tough physical type of tennis, and um, I think what, what sometimes what players or what fans are looking for is who's got an exciting kind of tennis that can I play uh, a kind of uh, tennis that brings people out of their seats. Uh, and Jabur has more of that, right? Um, and just like Rabakina last year when she won, it was an exciting kind of tennis. I think, though, we're, we're definitely in a stretch uh, where uh, there's a strong cohort of women at the top, um, that will kind of exchange winning Grand Slam titles. And it's unknown if any one of them has a game overwhelming enough or big enough or different enough to be able to sustain um, number one for an, uh, a long period of time. Uh, so, but, And that in itself, I think, is interesting, right? I think the women's field is wide open. We're speaking with Robert Bedauer, Sportsnet tennis analyst. Um, so you mentioned the Canadians and Bianca, in, in a sense, was one of the most positive storylines throughout the Canadians' opportunity at Wimbledon. Uh, but there were a couple faces that got an opportunity to play. So how do you evaluate just where ca- Canadian tennis is with the idea that the National Bank Open is around the corner, which is exciting for us? Um, we will definitely have our eyes on them when they come back to Canada. But this uh, big tune-up opportunity for some of Canada's greatest. So, yeah, let's start with the women. Uh, yeah, Bianca's definitely playing, um, getting closer to the form she had a few years ago, and I think that she's going to start, she continued to build on that su- subject to her not having any more injuries because mm-hmm. she has been a bit injury-prone. Uh, but a healthy Bianca Andreescu is um, somebody who I believe is firmly top 20 in the world in terms of her caliber and play. Layla Fernandez uh, won her first round and has become an ex- exceptional doubles player as well, which is really cool to see. So I think she's, she's, she's right. I think she's top 50 in singles. I, I feel like she's a top 30 player when everything's um, when she's playing consistently without any injuries. And I think she's probably a top 10 doubles player. So that's exciting and very good for our Billie Jean kick, uh, King Cup team mm-hmm. uh, that's competing in the finals, I think, in November. On the men's side, I, I think a big story is that Milos Raonic yeah. reappeared um, and, uh, and won a round, right? That's uh, surprising. Um, and and um, so given that you haven't, haven't played for two years, that's actually really impressive. Um, it was, I, I was a little disappointed to hear him say after, and maybe it was the emotion of losing the match when he said, yeah, I'm not sure you know, this is going to last very long. Um, but uh, that serve looked as great as ever, um, and he did not look out of place um, in his matches. So I think the potential for him to do some exciting things in Toronto would be very exciting for uh, Canadian tennis fans. Uh, Dennis Shapovalov making the round of 16, that, that's an indication that he's got a little more, I think, uh, solidity in the, in the camp, supporting camp and coaches around him, which I think was important. That's a good sign. Not sure how serious the knee is, but that was a lost opportunity. He, I think on, um, if he didn't have an injury, he would have made the quarterfinals and, and been competitive with Sinner. 
Um, and Felix is a concern. I, I think that the, the knee injury he suffered, um, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if he came back too soon or not. I can't speak mm. to that. But he, losing I think it's six tournaments in a row first round, that does affect your confidence. So he's going to need to find a way to, to get through a few early rounds and rebuild just the trust in his own game. I mean, it's a big game. Um, and everybody suffers from bouts of confidence, right, uh, coming off an injury, and they have a few losses that they, they feel they shouldn't have had. Uh, but that's the only one that I think right now is uh, a concern. Yeah, stock was on the rise for everybody, it seemed like, connected to Canadian tennis, you know, in the past couple of years. And maybe this hasn't been the greatest year because maybe those trajectories aren't shooting up the way they were with Layla and Felix. Uh, and, you know, Bianca's obviously making her way back. Uh, but if, you know, let's do the stock game. If you had to buy stock in one of these Canadian players, you mentioned Bianca first, uh, which is interesting because she's already uh, hit the pinnacle, obviously, winning the U.S. Open. But if you had to invest in one of these young athletes that's going to, you know, find their form here, figure out a way to get back on track, get back on that trajectory, which, uh, which athlete would you have circled? You know, um, I do invest and I do <laughs> make calculated um, bets from time to time and i would say given how young all four are i'd spread it out um now bianca has a bigger game than layla fernandez and already has won a slam yes Layla made, made a final but that was just amazing that those two ladies made the final that year i'm not both will probably admit it was a little before their time uh, whereas B- Bianca had already won Indian Wells, she won the National Bank Open going into the U.S. Open. So while it was a dark horse victory, there were signals already there that she could play at that level and win at that level. Uh, and she has a big game and a lot of variety. Um, I mean, Dennis Shapovalov, when he's on, right, he, he can beat anyone. It's the sustaining of that mentally uh, and not overplaying the ball. Um, and that, that's a personal characteristic. So you wonder if that with maturity, um, that, that balancing comes with his game. And, and Felix has already proven that like the run he had last fall where he won four tournaments in a row and, and really was the absolute key, key to Canada winning its first ever Davis Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, again, at his age, I'm not writing him off at all. He, can very, he, he could very quickly regain his form. And, and yeah, again, this fall in the faster courts be formidable. So. I'll be honest with you, between the between those four, I'd probably spread my bets out fairly evenly um, with leaning a bit with Bianca on the women's side. And um, Dennis's stock is up, but Felix has still got the full package. Well, it's a good spot to be in that you have multiple options to put your stock in because sometimes there's been a buy the dip a, a one a option uh, <laughs> stock market here. So we we like the we like to hear that there's a couple options for Canadian tennis. Uh, we really appreciate you jumping on today. Uh, a couple weeks away from the National Bank Open here, presented by Rogers. So hopefully we get a chance to chat with you to tee that one up as well. Uh, look forward to it. Should be great. Everybody enjoy the weekend tennis. It's going to be awesome. We can't wait either. Uh, that's Robert Bettauer, Sportsnet tennis analyst and. As we mentioned, the National Bank Open presented by Rogers is just a, a couple weeks away. I believe it starts August 4th. you got Montreal and you got Toronto. Uh, the men here in Toronto this time around. Last year, I got to go see Bianca uh, when she was playing in uh, at York there in Toronto. So switch it up this time around. But uh, mm-hmm. 2027 announced that they will have equal prize money. So a couple of years away, but still nonetheless a very positive step forward for a little bit of equality in tennis. Yeah, yeah, very exciting stuff. Uh, this weekend's going to be great. Uh, the 
I don't, I mean, clearly it's a bigger stage. I mean, Robert, Robert put it as such that Wimbledon is the biggest stage in tennis and the Wimbledon final, of course, bigger than the French Open final, but it's going to be fascinating to see Alcaraz and Djokovic go after it uh, once again. Um, whether Alcaraz can get up early on Djokovic, who Djokovic sometimes starts a little bit slow, and that wasn't a problem for him mm. in the semifinal, but it was a little bit in the quarterfinals. Uh, it's with those two, uh, maybe Alcaraz isn't quite ready to threaten Djokovic in the prime prime. Like maybe the timelines don't merge perfectly where it's best on best, mm. at least with those two. But it's possible. It like if it. Alcaraz is there, it is a, it is definitely possible. So we'll see what happens so with a different surface, different setting, uh, and all the stakes on the line, of course, for no- Novak Djokovic, who's continuing his march to you know supremacy when we're talking about the best that's ever done it. Minus 195 favorite Djokovic. And then in the women's bracket, similar, uh, minus 200 favorite for Anjabur. That might be a parlay there with Djokovic and Jabur if we're, if we're rolling with Bedauer, who likes to calculate a gamble yeah, he's every a calculated now and then. Man. So that might, be, that might be the way to go. Okay, well, that's Sunday uh, for the men at 10 a.m. and the women tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. All right, let's take a break because we have Cup Champ. Bruce Cassidy, Vegas Golden Knights head coach, joining us the day after his day with the Cup. We'll go through. He had a really special story about something that he did with his family and how they celebrated their special day with the Cup. We'll look through that uh, incredible run that Vegas did. Maybe a little bit about the uh, celebrations on the Strip. Mm-hmm. We'll get as much insight as we can from the head coach. Bruce Cassidy will join us. And then we'll wrap up the show with Ben Wagner live from the ballpark as the Blue Jays get back in action tonight. It's about time. I can't wait. I miss Blue Jays baseball. It's tonight's 707 first pitch with Jose Barrios on the mound. That's all to come on Fan Drive Time with Justin Cuthbert and Ailish at Forfar. Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Drive time. Justin Cuthbert and Ailish Forfar. Friday afternoon. And Ben Ennis' stead for a Friday afternoon. We'll be back again next week, 3 to 5, all week. Blue Jays, of course, back in action this weekend with the Arizona Diamondbacks and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and Gabby Moreno in town. <laughs> Should be fun. Might be some games played from dugout to dugout. A little rock, paper, scissors. We just did a little rock, paper, scissors. Four dead heats. So nothing can separate us. <laughs> Ailish Forfar. So this weekend, is there reason to relitigate the Dalton Varsho trade? I think so, but I think it's still too early to make real. You don't think we're going to be doing it on oh, Monday? We will be. We will be, but it's still like. So we don't have to do it now. Is no, we saying. don't have to do it now. But we can do it Monday. We'll do it Monday. We'll I'm do sure. it Monday. Okay. We've got head coach Bruce Cassidy of the Vegas Golden Knights joining us live um, with after your day with the Cup. We can't wait to hear all about it. How's it going, Coach? Uh, it's going well. It's going well. We had a terrific day yesterday. <laughs> so uh, thanks for having me on. Of course. Well, congratulations. A very much deserved and hard-earned honor. Um, I know you had your day with the Cup, and I know you did something very special with it. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the, uh, the family and the way that you were able to celebrate in, in a really special way with that trophy? Yeah, we, um, 
um, friend of the family, my daughter, Shannon, who's now 14, um, lost one of her best friends in a boating accident last year. They were three girls that were really tight, and unfortunately, um, she died over in Aruba in a unfortunate accident. And so the family started a, uh, a Cassidy Murray Foundation um, in her honor. So we helped launch it yesterday in Milton, which is um, right outside of Boston. Uh, so we had a good, really good turnout, um, a lot of support for it, creating awareness for what they're trying to do and raise some money. And so we spent uh, most of the morning there. So it was a, a great, great day um, trying to make something good out of tough circumstances for the Murray family. And yeah, so that's how we started. And the rest of the day we spent with friends and family and got some great weather and had a really good day with it. Well, it's great you could do something special with it, Bruce. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we hear a lot about everyone's plans, and, and uh, it's it's a powerful thing, right? That trophy is a powerful thing. So I'm glad you could use that power uh, to some good use uh, for part of your day yesterday. Uh, you said in the past that, uh, you know, you dream about seeing your name etched in the Stanley Cup. So, of course, the names are on there of the Vegas Golden Knights uh, who uh, were lucky enough to have their names inscribed on it when you first saw it. What did you think? Well, it's a really cool thing because most of the time, from what I understand, is um, your name's not on it when you get it. It mm-hmm. goes on in the, I think it's September, October. So it's right there. So people, mm-hmm. they look at you and say, we didn't really win. I said, yeah, my name's right there. <laughs> so you got that. You can prove it. Um, so it is cool. And you read through all the names. I had, um, I'm in Cape Cod for the summer. So I had the three other Stanley Cup champions were with me last night at a little dinner. So it's kind of neat to see them go back and look at it. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's just a really neat thing if, obviously, we're in the team to win the Cup, and I've been at it a long time. So, um, as you said, it's very powerful. And it's it's 35 pounds, so it's heavy if you're lifting it all night, too. My shoulders are paying the price, too, this morning. But i do it again, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, there you go. Uh, I don't know if there's any food or drink specific to Cape Cod. Never been there myself. But, what? Are you uh, kidding? I've never been there. Well, East you tell Coast me. lifestyle. S- specific to Cape Cod, is there something you were able to put into the cup, eat out Did of the cup? you get chowder? Chowder. Chowder in the cup? Were you able to, uh, you know, consume beverage or food out of the cup, Bruce? Well, and lobster, right? They're known for their lobster, mm-hmm. but... Um, uh, yes, there was some, uh, there was some, uh, the family dinner, it was simply for the youngest kids, there was some water for uh, my daughter and a few of her friends, there was some chocolate milk. Okay. Um, for some of the adults, there was, uh, some beer at the end of the night and a little bit of red wine. So yeah, we had a little bit of everything. We wiped it up nicely after each serving. So it was good. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That sounds like a lot of fun. Okay. So let's go to the process of winning the Stanley Cup. I, I think in everybody's mind, they maybe saw the writing on the wall at different times. I thought after you beat the Edmonton Oilers, well, there's your cup champ, the Vegas Golden Knights, uh, because that was a formidable formidable opponent, and you guys dealt with it very, very well. Uh, I'm sure you weren't counting your chickens before they hatch at that point, but when did you know that you guys were going to win the Stanley Cup? Well, I guess as a coach, you, you never know, but um, I agree with you. I think the Edmonton series for us is the one that really propelled us into that uh, confident mode. Um, it was, a, you know, it was a hard fought. It was it got nasty at times, and we had such elite talent over there that I think after that we thought, well, you know, we're as good as anybody left. I'm sure we felt that in our minds when we started, but you don't know, right? So you start getting going, and um, so I would say that was a, a point where we started to feel good about our game, and we got up in Dallas in a hurry. Then um, the Florida series, I just felt we're the better team all along. Our guys just mm-hmm. felt like uh, you know, we, we would we would come through, and. 
I don't think they were ever arrogant at all. Uh, I really don't believe that about our group. They just had a, an inner confidence about them that if something bad happened or we didn't play a good period, we'd get right back at it. And So, I, like I said, I don't know if I'm pinpointing an exact time, but certainly the Edmonton series um, gave us a, a lot of juice. Yeah, that team mentality and that unity that uh, you guys had, I wonder how much you give credit to, like, the misfits. And I know it's, it's a fun saying, but those guys really helped instill a culture and uh, a, a unity that clearly got you over the hump. And we saw that when the cup was passed from one to another, that importance of the original guys that were there and had kind of grinded it out and ultimately got there in, in six short seasons. Yeah, they, they deserve a lot of the credit. They laid the... Um the foundation for this hockey club and year one they went to the finals they lost unfortunately to washington they would say to a man i think they weren't um i want to say happy to be there because i don't know if that's right but you know what i mean they were kind of like wow look at us go here but this time around then you know they'd gotten to the conference finals a couple times a lot of the same group but not over the hump and i think this time once we were in it there was a lot of that we're going to get it done this time it's going to be all business and uh you can still have fun when you're you're doing that, but I think our guys were really focused at the right times. Um, and you had some guys uh, that had won it, um, so they were able to sort of calm us down at the right times. And I think I fall in the category one of the misfits. I lost in 19 in Game 7 against St. Louis, so I had a little bit more of that drive that this time we're going to get it right. And so it was a good mix, and, and you have enough young guys that have never been there either that you're just playing every day, right? Aiden Hills of the world are just enjoying the moment. And, um, so, like I said, I thought we had a lot of different sort of um, motivation to win it, but the Misfits certainly are the guys that uh, deserve the most credit for actually just growing the game in Vegas, uh, period, because I don't know if you've been out there, but what a great fan. I was surprised by how much they're into hockey in Vegas and, and the, the knowledge of the fan base. So. Yeah, that's what I want to ask you about next, uh, Bruce, because famously you were out of a job for only eight days, which I think is maybe the mark of a really good coach (laughs) that you were that sought after that it only took just over a week for you to land a new job. But uh, I mean, in those eight days, you couldn't have known or soaked in or absorbed everything that was when it came to the Vegas Golden Knights. Like you were going in somewhat blind because you didn't really take that much time to evaluate. You took that job because it was a great opportunity. And of course, it worked out beautifully. So I wonder maybe beyond the misfits and how, how uh, you know, the roots are as strong as they are. What are the things you learned about Vegas, the organization, the Golden Knights themselves? Like, what surprised you when you took that job about the situation that you were entering? Well, you're right. I didn't have a lot of time. Um, but, I mean, that's obviously a good thing. And uh, I'm grateful that I was their guy in the end. But, um, you know, they're very driven. I think Bill Foley, as an owner, has one goal, and that's to win the Cup and have success. And he's going to give the people uh, that work for him everything necessary to do that. Um, you read about certain things um, about Vegas and how, how quickly things have happened. So there's a lot, of, there's a lot of anger towards the organization when, I, when I'm talking to people or reading because I think they've done so well coming right out of expansion. But i got to tell you, they're really good group of guys, nice people to work for, um, great to go to work. I mean, there's a lot of newness that helps. Like, oh, the rink is new, practice facility. Um, but I find the cities like that in general, honestly, the people are pretty down to earth. So I think they're just following in step with, you know, where they are. Um, so I don't know if that surprised me, but I guess it just, 
it's a good culture in that regard to, to go to work in every day and, and they expect success and, and um, you know, give the people the resources to do it. Yeah, it seems like a commitment is something that is just overwhelming, right? And I think that's top down, starting with the ownership and Bill Foley. It just seemed like if there's a differentiator, if something different about Vegas than everywhere else, it's that there is a want above anything else to win. And I think that just permeates positivity throughout the entire organization. And of course, taking advantage of that scenario in your first year at the helm. I do wonder, though, last year, because Boston had such an unbelievable year themselves. Uh, they had an historic season, of course, running away with the President's Trophy. And you had just coached Boston for several seasons. Was it hard for you to separate yourself from the Boston storyline? Or were you so consumed with what you were doing? I mean, that was just beyond an arm's reach for you. No, it was hard. And some of that, um, it's when you're asked questions when you leave a place, right? You can choose to answer them or not. And I've always been a guy that has tried to answer questions. So a lot of them did come up about Boston. Um, and some of it, Yes, we're sitting there going, geez, you know, like, why couldn't have I got this team to that, you know, that level? Like, we won 51 games the year I got fired, but you think you're doing a good job, but at the end of the day, you didn't get done in the playoffs. And uh, so, yes, there was a little bit of anxiety around the family, um, you know, because we have a home in Cape Cod, too, so we're going to go back. And I'm like, great, I'm going to go back. They're going to be Stanley Cup champions. My kids are going to get <laughs> you know what I mean? They're going to hear about their dad. Um, so at the end of the day, there's a little bit of that that goes on. And then you got to sort of get into your own moment, right? Like we're talking as a fan, hey, we're pretty good too here in Vegas. So maybe we'll get a, you know, maybe we'll play each other down the road. You never know the way things are going. So I think you just get back into your work after a while and where you are. Um, so your head gets to be where your feet are. And uh, we focused on the task at hand there. And, and again, still answering some questions. I answered some the other day here about the Bruins situation, which I'm obviously much farther detached from now. So, uh, but at the end of the day, we stay here. Uh, Shannon Cole were both born in, in Rhode Island, so they're, they're New Englanders. So um, it'll always be a part of me. I don't think I'll ever uh, get away from it. Because I, I that's the team I rooted for growing up. And when I talked about the cup earlier, I invited uh, Ray Bork and Bobby Orr to our, mm-hmm. to our little party yesterday, and they showed up. And they're Bruins, right? Lifetime Bruins. So, like I said, I, I think it'll always be part of me. I just wish there was a part that was a Stanley Cup champion there. We were close in 19, but... Um, didn't work out. Got it done last year. So, yeah, that's where we're at. Did a part of you want to have to face Boston there um, at the very final to have them emerge on the other side of the bracket and face them for the cup? Well, I, I don't know how many people reached out to me, like, in about early April. Like, we'll see, hopefully see you in two months at the Garden. And <laughs> So I wanted to send a mass email back to everybody. So we did our part. <laughs> you know, where are you guys? <laughs> Uh, but that would be the extent of it. I think when you're that far along, you'll take whoever's there. You trust me, you, would, you know, to get another opportunity at it. It would have been a great storyline for those reasons, mm. but um, uh, we got who we got and happened to get a, uh, a Florida team that I think was a little bit into the series. We started to run out a little bit of gas and we were able to take advantage of it. <laughs> uh, we're chatting with Bruce Cassidy, of course, coached the Vegas Golden Knights to the Stanley Cup. Um Riley Smith was a big part of that. Uh, he received the Stanley Cup second. The first handoff went to Riley Smith uh, from the hands of Mark Stone. Uh, how difficult was it to see him uh, traded away this offseason? Yeah, it was hard. Um, and, you know, when I first heard about it, I was kind of like, wow, it's like, how is this going to affect our locker room? He's a popular guy. He's a, a really good hockey player. But at the end of the day, it almost, with the salary cap world, these are some of the moves that, 
almost have to have, or the tough decisions you have to make, right? We're able to retain Barbashev um, and resign Aiden Hill. So, uh, but it came at a cost of another, some dollars had to go out at the end of the day. So, um, but th- those are some of the things that we were talking about earlier that Vegas, I think they're not afraid to make those um, unpopular decisions for the good of the team. Right. And, and that's what it was. It's unpopular. I mean, as I said, at, at every from George Grimm, everyone loves him right on down and he's a good player for us. It's just something we had to do. And last year, there's a few other players that had to leave because they got up against the cap. So um, I said that those are the, the tough things in hockey, but at least he's leaving here with a great legacy with the Stanley Cup champion. And like I said, a founder of the, the Knights and, Wish him nothing but the best in Pittsburgh. Yeah, those things don't go unnoticed, right? Like everyone in the hockey world notices that Vegas is able to make the decisions that maybe other teams would be reluctant to make. And as hard as it is to say goodbye, I guess it is easier after you win a Stanley Cup. But yeah, I mean, I think that illustrates maybe part of the reason why Vegas is different, that they are able to make that move when other teams maybe wouldn't. Uh, Another big key is that you have a pretty darn good captain in Mark Stone. And you've had great captains, uh, of course, with Patrice Bergeron uh, in the Boston Bruins. I mean, that's something that's debated a little bit in this market. How important is the captain really? I'll ask you, how important is a captain from a guy who's had Patrice Bergeron and Mark Stone as his captains? Yeah, some of that may depend on the rest of the room. What's the makeup of it? Is there enough people around them uh, to pick up the group? Um, you know, or not. So I think if there's not, then yes, you, you probably have to have, is it a young core? And you have a guy that's going to lead vocally and uh, by example. So I, I thought it was great for me. When I first came, it was Zidane Chara, and then it was Bergie, and they were two fantastic guys that had, uh, had won a cup, had been there, and they were able to help me in, in some of those uh, moments in the playoffs early on. Um, and, and then you allow them to control the room because they've been around so long and they're such good pros. And Mark certainly falls into that category. The problem that with Stoney a little bit is he got hurt <clears throat> both years. So he missed half, half of seasons uh, recovering his back. So that's where uh, having an Alex Petrangelo helped us. Another guy and Alec Martinez, guys that have been captain. So um, they're, they're, they're great guys and they're great leaders on the ice. Uh, very popular teammates. So uh, I can't thank them enough. And, um, yeah, I, I think it is, it is really important. But, you know, you have to get into the fabric of the room to see how important, I guess, um, it would be for each and every team. We did talk, talk to uh, Mark Stone a few days after the Stanley Cup. I'm not sure if he'll remember that conversation. but Seemed a little drained, Bruce. He might have been a bit tired. Uh, it was hilarious, but he was so maybe great. It was, maybe it was hanging out with William Carlson. I think we did ask him about William Carlson and uh, he had uh, some funny answers, but obviously everybody's celebrating and uh, it was very fun to watch from afar. Um, You do have some new assistants on your bench um, heading into this upcoming season. So tell us a little bit about the decisions to add Dominic Ducharme and Joel Ward um, as your newest bench bosses into the upcoming year. Yeah, I mean, we loved our staff last year. Obviously, Ryan, Ryan Craig went down to Henderson, our American League affiliate, to be a head coach. He'd never been a head coach. So his move was um, that's one of the reasons we uh, we had an opening. And, you know, I, I think Ryan's going to be a, a great coach. He just needed to run his own bench. So something we were happy to have someone from the organization go down there with our young guys. And that opened the door for Dom Ducharme. What I liked a lot about Dom is in our interviews, he was – he was humbled a little bit in Montreal, and uh, I've been through that. Uh, John Stevens, our uh, runs our D's, been through that. So it's a great answer to me. He just wanted to get back to work with a, a good organization and do what he needed to do to 
to help the club win. So, um, and then uh, Misha Donskoff left uh, to go back closer to home in Ohio. A um, uh, great guy too, and a, a real popular coach. Um, so that opened the door for Joel Ward, who was an assistant in Henderson, to come up, a young guy that's uh, played over 700 NHL games, and he, he's a recently retired uh, player. And that's what we were looking for for one of our positions—a guy that can relate to the young guys that, you know, like I said, played the game most recently and uh, has the most experience and had some coaching experience, but a guy that we can sort of mold a little bit and help along in his career. So, you know, that's how we came to the decision on those guys. And um, I think they're both going to do a great job. Yeah, um, they got a, a great pedigree and joining a, a pretty stable uh, bench itself will be a very, uh, very good start for your upcoming year. But uh, before we let you go, we have to ask, you know, you just had your day with the Cup and you've had probably the last couple uh, weeks or months of celebrating. What was the best part of just the uh, opportunity to be on the strip with the Cup, to see all the fans and the fan base that has surprised a lot of people, I think, as well, in terms of their uh, commitment level and their love for the Vegas Golden Knights, the entire celebration in one is there a favorite moment is there a favorite celebrity that happened to stop by or something really fun that you could share with us today well on the ice was fantastic because you know you're lifting the cup and you're watching everyone around you lift it and and as i said guys that were close before so that that's (laughs) probably one of the first things that comes to mind and you're lifting it looking for your kids and your family and wanting to get them down on the ice and we did it at home right so you got nineteen thousand people there and they're still all in the seat so it's very cool (laughs) Um, I would say the parade was a blast coming up uh, Las Vegas Boulevard. I didn't know what to expect um, in terms of fan turnout. It was wild. They were 20 and 30 rows deep and, and then on the stage after. <laughs> so a lot of good stuff going on. And I think the guys really kind of let it all out that night. It was, it was great. And uh, honestly, the last part was yesterday. Uh, now, we're, now we're in Cape Cod and, and uh, getting the launch that foundation with so many people turn up to support it. And then our little dinner last night, uh, all the kind of members from where I live over here were there. So really good support from both Vegas fans and, and Boston Bruins fans. And a lot of people will say, ah, oh, you know, the Bruins, I said, you know what, you can support a team and a person. Um, you can do both, you know? And uh, so that was really cool uh, from, you know, where I'd spent, geez, basically what, 14 years in that organization. So I got to see both sides of it. Um, so I don't know if that was one particular thing, but those three definitely stand out. Um, and now we got, now people are sending in all the pictures from all those events now, right? And you're starting to see them and, and it goes by quick, you know, until you're on the ice and you're gone, you're in the dressing room, the champagne's getting sprayed. So you forget some of that. It happened so fast. So some of those pictures are great reminders to me. Well, congratulations, Bruce. Uh, it was a joy watching you guys on the run to the Stanley Cup. It was hockey played at an extremely high level. So congratulations on that. And the cliche is that you never pay for a meal again if you if you bring a championship to a city. That seems like something you could take advantage of in Vegas. Does it, does it not? Well, yeah. You know, it's funny. We got invited out to all sorts of these nice restaurants and dinners right away. So you're right. <laughs> Place called uh, Jing. Uh, there's... Uh, Barry Steakhouse. I mean, I go down the list. They're like, come on over. And uh, by the way, can you bring the cup with you? And it's funny because I'm like, I only get it for a day. So no, I can't. So, <laughs> But uh, we, we did in our day here. We brought it places. And hopefully, I think the guys did when they were there. So uh, it made the rounds as well. Now it's kind of off to summer homes. Uh, but we'll, we'll get it back in Vegas in September. So we'll be able to catch up with a lot of the 
guys leave town, so that'll be good. Uh, it'll go. be, we'll be celebrating right to the start of the year. And get yourself a few meals with that cup. That sounds like uh, <laughs> yeah. a good dinner date to me. Uh, Bruce, again, congratulations. It was so much fun catching up with you. And, uh, yeah, Vegas Golden Knights, pretty, pretty impressive. So congratulations on it all, and uh, best of luck next season. All right. Thanks, Iris. Thanks, Justin, for having me on. Appreciate it. That's Bruce Cassidy of the Vegas Golden Knights. What a great guy, eh? Like, just, I, I love that he brought up you can cheer for, like, a person and a team. I, I know he meant a lot to that part of, the, like, just that coast in general, right? Like, everything yeah. Mass, Cape Cod, Boston, like, that's that's who he is. And uh, those people still support him. And I think that was a really special touch that he had that moment with the cop yesterday starting that foundation that's really, really kind of what you want from someone that is celebrating something that unites hockey fans, right? Yeah, it seems like it'll be impossible for him to extricate himself from the Boston area. Like, yeah, but he, he admits that, and I think that's really and it is nice because because a lot of people and we see you know hurt feelings all the time mm-hmm. in sports where it's like oh you it's betrayal you turn your back on me and and this and uh, that and uh, this and that right so it, it just seems like you know he wears his heart on his sleeve. Uh, it still means something to him. He mm-hmm. brings the cup there. He's hanging out with Boston Bruins legends for his Stanley Cup party, but. Vegas has got a big part of his heart, too. It's uh, very, very obvious. So an accomplished guy, uh, no doubt, and a guy who's going to be connected to Boston forever, but is a Stanley Cup champion with Vegas. I, I love watching where the cup goes. There's, the cup has its own account, like Keeper of the Cup, I believe, is uh, the handle, and you can just see it take its way across the world. And it's always fun to watch it go across the summer. I, I, I don't know. We met the cup. This We met the cup. We met the we cup. shook its hand. We met the cup with the... I got in trouble for touching it once. Like like I was supposed to be the way that the Maple Leafs either won or didn't win the cup because I touched it here mm-hmm. at Sportsnet. Anyway, we did meet it, and it's, it's glorious. If you were at a cup party, would you? how would you conduct yourself? As a professional. Like, would you touch it? I wouldn't would be at a cup it? party. I would be would you lift it? at home researching stats. I'm I'm staunchly against ever touching it. And it's not like a superstition <sighs> thing. I just I hold it in such mm-hmm. high regard that the people that do win it, that's for them. Well, like, so Bruce Cassidy wins a cup. His kids could touch the cup and drink out of it. I think that's fine. Yeah. But if you're Bruce Cassidy's neighbor, are you touching the cup and drinking out of it? I don't think so. Okay. Well, you'll... Family's different. Yeah, family is different. But you're going to have, you know, morons lifting it up morons. and running around with it like there's the, the sanctity right it's it should morons i'm just saying there shouldn't it, it, you should excited you fans. should be connected yeah, to the it. person or want it yourself to use it in the way that only those who had a hand in actually achieving it and capturing it that's there should be some boundaries. Okay, so don't invite Justin to your cup party. No, do it because nope. I'll be respectful to the cup. Well, I'll play by the rules. You won't even want to be in the same room as it. It sounds like I would be uh, not uncomfortable, but I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to mess things up. Okay, well, we'll see if that ever happens for you. I don't think it will. Okay, um, we are thirty minutes away from our weekend, and Ben Wagner will join us after the break. Uh, radio voice of the Jays on Sportsnet Five Ninety. The fan, the Blue Jays are back in action tonight at the. Ballpark, 707 first pitch. You got Jose Barrios on the mound to kick things off for this unofficial second half of the season. And Blair and Barker are going to be after us after we've taken their seat for most of the week. So you have lots more baseball to, to kick you off for the weekend. So we'll talk to Ben Wagner after the break. Justin and Ailish on Fan Drive Time. Sportsnet 590, The Fan.
by Subaru, powered by the heart-pounding turbocharged WRX on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Final block on fan drive time. Justin Cuthbert, Ailish, four far before we head off on our weekend and watch some Blue Jays baseball. They're back in town. 707 first pitch tonight on Sportsnet 590 Fan and Sportsnet. You're going to hear this man's voice in just a few hours. It's Ben Wagner joining us live from the ballpark. How's it going, Ben? It's going great. I feel like I've been shot out of a cannon after four days off in the middle of a baseball season. Hell yeah. So. That's good, yeah. Ben. How's the yeah, energy down right. there? Yeah, yeah. It is an exciting time of year, especially when you look overall at the season. You're like, man, 162 games is such a long grind. So many things have to work in the favor of a ball club that you have high expectations for. Then all of a sudden you get to June, you start thinking about the all-star break. All-star break then leads to the trade deadline. Then you're like, oh, my gosh, the season's gone. Two and a half months just fly by. That's where I always find myself this time of the year. Do you get to do um, anything during All-Star break? Did you watch everything? Did you take a little bit of time to, to breathe? Um, and was there a best moment of it for you? Uh, turning the television off. Okay. <laughs> I, I respect that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, uh, honestly, I unplug. Mm-hmm. And I, I've not that I would immerse myself into every All-Star festivity, but this certainly had a lot going around from a Blue Jay perspective. Mm-hmm. So you pay attention. But I do not hang on every tweet, every piece of social media content that's happening in and around Seattle. Certainly like I would if I was on the clock, let's Mm -hmm. say, right? It's a totally different shift in gear. I kind of absorb it just like a fan. You know, if I'm hungry, I get up and I go to the fridge. If I'm thirsty, well, I may crack a frothy beverage in the middle of a game. These are things certainly I'm not afforded when watching and calling Blue Jays baseball. Uh, Well, I'm glad to hear that you got a little bit of R&R because I think you deserve it, certainly after a very long season. But um, seeing Vladimir Guerrero Jr. win the home run derby, I'm sure you caught that. Um, I wonder, though, obviously the moment was really special. We had John Morosi on a little bit earlier this week, and he brought up a good point that, you know, we're asking, is it going to change Vladdy? Is it going to change Vladdy? But he brought up a great point of it. Maybe it'll change how the Diamondbacks approach him this weekend or how pitchers will approach Vladdy moving forward. Is that something you've thought of um, in just this return to action and how Vladdy's home run derby might affect or not affect the rest of this season? You know, I thought about it the week leading up to the All-Star break, too, when he officially said he was in and he wanted mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, so I thought, you know, there's a million different things that circle around a player's performance around the home run derby. You're watching, do they succeed immediately after? Do they go into a tailspin? And there have been a lot of guys that go into a tailspin because of how taxing it is. But I knew John Schneider was going to throw to him, so he's going to have a really good home run derby pitcher. Other guys that have their youth baseball coaches, maybe not so much, you know? That's a roll of the dice. But Schneider's being there, and the fact that Vladdy was so excited, I'm in the camp of it's going to work conversely for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And my thought leading into that, watching the road trip and how Vladdy was, you know, getting asked about it, talking about it, you could start to see the buzz and that and that shine come back to a smile. And honestly, and I know the cameras only caught certain moments of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. when he was elated and watching and even rooting on Randy Rosarena there towards the tail end. That kind of excitement we have not seen on the field from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. over a year and a half. So I, I'm in the camp of 
this is a really good thing for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He's 15 feet from me right now on the field at Rogers Center. He's bopping around. He doesn't have the dial on his chest anymore, <laughs> but he's bopping around kind of with this playful attitude that I think is going to really help him come away from this all-star break. And while it was physically taxing, I think it was mentally relieving for him to get there, have some fun, and win. Yeah, a little recognition, a little shine, a little accomplishment. I think these are all really, really good things, and it can lead to confidence, which is something that can actually manifest itself on the baseball diamond. So, yeah, I mean, I think confidence is a thing that any power hitter, any struggling hitter, or at least struggling in the own context of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., I, I think it can be a thing. Is this a player that does run somewhat on confidence for you? Well, I think everybody runs on confidence. Confidence is the most dangerous drug that you can have as an athlete or an athlete in competition mode. And when Vlad, I hearken back to 2021, I mean, the thing that I remember most about 2021 is one, everybody was aware where he was in the batting order and coming up next. You could not miss a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. at bat. And that is because every time he went to the plate, he was going up there with confidence. He was seeing pitches at another level. He was tracking pitches. His takes were incredible. If you think back to when he was performing at his highest level, I'm not even saying that this level is at a low level. He's really performing well, but he wants those. He wants those gaudy numbers, right? He knows everybody's looking at the home run total and home run totals and RBIs and getting on base and being that elite caliber player is where he wants to take his game and where he expects to be. And from a Blue Jays fan perspective, that's where they expect him to be too. So I, I certainly think confidence is a, complete game changer with an athlete well uh big big eyes will be on uh what vladimir grow jr does tonight and this weekend i'm sure if he hits one home run we'll be uh, betting him for a future all-star <laughs> mvp for sure uh but the well, eyes... maybe if shohei gets traded to the national uh, league uh, we go. Got a window open. <laughs> there you go um eyes will also be on alec manoa who seems to be now uh in the blue jays rotation moving forward or at least that's the uh, the, the the word we're hearing from uh, the latest conversation with john schneider so uh haven't got a chance to hear about your thoughts on Manoa's last outing just where that leaves the Blue Jays moving forward um, and your level of confidence with like the steps that he had taken in his return on um, last Friday night uh, one a huge step for Alex Manoa first mm. I mean he was really really good when he was out there on the mound and his the shape of his slider the fastball command he had a couple of upticks in velocity with his fastball which I really like and I think that is going to help him and his slider become more effective the slider thing are you looking for the wipeout slider or are you looking for good depth on the slider? I think that it's building and trending in the right direction for Alec. He just threw a bullpen today that lines him up to pitch the second game against the Padres, which will be a bigger test and much more dangerous and talented hitters in the lineup for the Padres than what he had in Detroit. But listen, it was a soft landing spot for Alec and a springboard for him out of a cavernous ballpark like Detroit. A lineup that has some threats, but certainly not like you're going to see when he's back at Rogers Center on, I think that's Wednesday. Uh, any surprise with the order of go for the uh, Blue Jays uh, pitching rotation here? We're going to see Barrios, we believe, tonight. Gosman and Kikuchi over the weekend. Again, we believe Blue Jays have them listed as probables right now. And you mentioned, you know, Manoa going versus the San Diego Padres. I, I thought we might see Manoa this weekend. I thought we might see Gosman tonight. Was there any uh, surprise when you saw the order of go for the Blue Jays rotation? No, not really. Um, they, they didn't want to stack too many guys with too many days off from their last start outside of the All-Star break, so their last turn before the All-Star break. 
and coming out, they looked at matchups in specific, how they would trend against the Diamondbacks batting order and the Padres batting order. But they also wanted to get Alex specifically an extra bullpen session in there just to make sure he's back on track. If there was anything funky that they had to work out, they could work on it without a rush to get him into this first series. So a lot went into the planning. Uh, the Blue Jays had this lined up when they were in Chicago. Uh, I'm led to believe that they kind of mapped out this plan. Everybody got on the same page. So a Barrios, then, what do we say? Barrios, Gosman, tonight, Kikuchi, yeah. Gosman, and then Kikuchi, yeah. So the other thing that factored into this is Chris Bassett needs a breather. Mm-hmm. So they built in the extra days for Chris ba- Bassett, using the off day as a little bit of a bonus for him, too, on Monday to get him in into that first game against the Padres. So there was a little bit of, not a little bit, there was a lot of calculation that went into how they construct the rotation going into and then out of the All-Star break. Uh, sounds like Hanjin Ryu is pitching, um, starting making a rehab start tomorrow, AAA Buffalo. I'm seeing that from reports uh, from our Sportsnet guys down at the field right now. You probably can see them. Um, sounds like he was out there today, and he's going to be coming back and easing himself into the lineup. So how does that affect things? Because if I'm doing my numbers right, there's going to be uh, maybe one too many pitchers in the rotation moving forward. <laughs> you know, these things always have a funny way of working <laughs> themselves out, don't they? Mm-hmm. Especially in the weeks that are leading into a trade deadline. The, the good news for Kyunjin Ryu is he looks great. He's at Rogers Center today. He was out in the outfield playing catch. And I was in the room, too, when John Schneider was visiting with all of our Sportsnet colleagues in his daily media scrum. And things are really, really, really working in favor of Kyunjin Ryu. How he's rehabbing, how he's bouncing back after every outing, let alone just his starts. And the numbers were really good. The Blue Jays are very encouraged in where he was in the lower levels. And tomorrow night in Buffalo – Ryu will make that next start. They're hoping for four or five innings, get him up around 65 pitches, and now it's time to play ball with Ryu. Mm-hmm. Likely to get a couple at AAA and then take it from there to find out how he's recovering. And when you get into the window of 85, 90 pitches, now you think it's go time. And I would say tomorrow would be the first of likely three AAA outings for Hyunjin Ryu, and then that gets you closer to the end of, of July. And we all know what happens at the end of July with the trade deadline. But it's also a benefit for the Blue Jays if they have six men in the rotation labeled as six men in the rotation. It benefits the Blue Jays because these guys, the Kevin Gosman, Alec Manoa, Chris Bassett, always will take a bonus day of rest in between their starts. So if they can manufacture in just another starter and work with a six-man rotation, this is certainly on the table for the Blue Jays. Yeah, it's it's uh, very, very interesting. In terms of data points, I mean, I think the Ryu thing is important. Um, but, you know, if if you don't have that extra starter, I guess it's a five-man rotation, and you're, I guess you have Alec Manoa penciled in there throughout, which is, of course, not a bad thing or not a bad thing based on what he was able to do last Friday night. Uh, but there are really, really important series and other data points to uh, pick up over the next little bit here before the trade deadline. Uh, of course, the Diamondbacks this weekend, Padres, Mariners, Dodgers, Angels. Do these five series decide the direction for the Blue Jays ahead of the trade deadline for you? Short answer is no. They don't decide the direction going into the trade deadline, but they're extremely important. Uh, As we learned, it's not who you play, it's when you play them. And and for the Blue Jays to play their best baseball, they've got to have good starting pitching. So more importantly, can they find this good starting pitching, consistent starting pitching, to alleviate some of the pressure over the last six weeks has been on a depleted bullpen and really exasperated bullpen too, and find some slots. 
but overarching, overarching these five series to get us into early August, I don't think we're are going to dictate the direction the Blue Jays want to go. I I get the overwhelming sense that one they know they're better than what they have played. Uh, they understand that they can be better than what they have played, and they're all in. They're all in, and if they can improve the major league roster, whether it's dinging prospect capital in the minor leagues, whether it's even a major league piece shifting from one spot to the next, that is certainly up in front center of mind going into the all-star or going into the trade deadline for the front office. So what is the need then, do you think? Uh, there's an abundance of pitching all of a sudden. There might be Chad Green mm-hmm. waiting in the wings. Uh, if this team is all in, what's the all-in move? Uh I still think they'd like a, an arm in the bullpen. I know you're going to get Chad Green back, somebody that's just kind of not in the conversation, but a really valuable piece when he's here is Zach Pop. Mm-hmm. And his injury has taken so long to come back. Uh, they really miss Zach Pop and what he allows in the situation that he allows. Power sinker, really good off-speed stuff. If they can get two, two ads, that's essentially like an ad. But I still think that the Blue Jays would love to find somebody that's a threat off the bench, right-handed or left-handed, a consistent threat. Because what the Blue Jays do not have in terms of their depth pieces is major power and a threat, a nemesis that you're always worried about looming in your back of your mind. And that's not to detract how the Blue Jays have won games, but they're doing it creatively right now. They're not mashing the ball. And whether that is somebody cycling in that DH spot, that's a little bit more of a threat than what Brandon Belt has been over the course of the year. Find some consistency in those spots. I think a major power bat is something the Blue Jays are hunting and maybe another piece in the bullpen. We're speaking to our very own Ben Wagner, and we won't keep you for much longer, but I wanted to ask about the return of Lourdes Gabriel Jr. tonight and Gabby Moreno and uh, I guess just the atmosphere and uh, the energy around that and, you know, to at least one guy that was here for quite a while that people loved and then the young Gabby Moreno, which we'll always be comparing uh, with that big trade, Dalton Varsho. <laughs> You know, the energy around this entire scenario, and I don't know if you've heard the screaming going on in the background. I heard Whitney Houston on the uh, the speakers there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was not my selection on the playlist for BP today. But, but um, the music's pumping. There's high energy on the field. The fans that are assembled behind the velvet rope here are watching bad practice right now. When they caught a glimpse of Gabriel Moreno on the field, they went absolutely bananas. I mean bananas. They were yelling, Gabby, 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 come over. So he signed some autographs. Bo Bichette just walked over, had a conversation with him for a little bit. Gurriel's purple hair popped out a little bit ago. Uh, he got a nice ovation. Dalton Varsho is in the visiting dugout where I'm kind of pacing back and forth providing this, this commentary. Uh, he came over. He was interacting with a number of the Arizona Diamondbacks coaches that were out here and some members of the support staff. So it is certainly, it's certainly not like these guys are hiding in the shadows waiting to take the field and see what happens. They are fully embracing kind of the revenge tour, if you will, from one organization to the next. But it is very playful, and there are a lot of smiles happening. Uh, of course, it is the weekend to relitigate that trade just a little bit. Uh, you mentioned the Blue Jays do have more to give. They can play better baseball. Does that include Dalton Varsho? Do you expect more from him in the second half? I do, and I know Dalton expects more of himself, too. Average-wise, on base-wise, he feels that he can provide more to the Blue Jays and add length because when he's doing those things, that length that he can add to the lineup makes him a little bit bigger of a piece to bounce around and, and drop in a left-handed bat here or there. Power numbers are power numbers, but what Dalton's forcing and really fo- focusing on 
right now is finding a better rhythm at the plate. And he says, I'm a tinkerer. I like to mess with my hands. I like to mess with my stance. I, I want to feel in rhythm from head to toe. But sometimes from head to toe, there's a little lapse, where his shoulders might feel out of balance a little bit. The hands might get off kilter just a little bit, or the lower half doesn't feel as strong as what he wants it to feel. So he's thinking about all these things, trying to find that rhythm. And it's been inconsistent at this point. What he works on in batting practice is just trying to drive the baseball line to line, trying to get gap to gap. And he feels if he can find that rhythm at the plate and do those little things early in the afternoon, he's just going to be a much valuable, much more valuable piece for the Blue Jays in the lineup for Josh Schneider. Last one for you, Ben. Uh, fill in the blank question. Uh, super easy, like a Mad Lib. Shohei Otani being traded would be the blank thing in your career covering baseball. Craziest, most shocking, exciting. Uh, stunning. Okay. Well, stunning. we're hearing rumors it's, that the door is open. I think the door is open. Uh, it would have to be a king's ransom <laughs> to get Shohei Otani off the books in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I don't think he's going back to Los Angeles, but if that comes in play and it gets executed between uh, take out one deal, and he's going to land with a team, right? Mm-hmm. If he gets traded, but I think it's going to take a lot of moving pieces to pull off a deal like that. Well, excitement as we approach the trade deadline uh, for the Blue Jays and for the rest of the MLB. Uh, we appreciate your time today. Have a great call. Glad to have you back on our airwaves and uh, we'll chat down the road. Ben. Sounds great. Settle up for a great two and a half months. Love it. Thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it. That's Ben Wagner, voice of the Blue Jays. For us at Sportsnet 590, the fan live from the Rogers Center as the Blue Jays kick off the unofficial second half of their season against the Arizona Diamondbacks tonight. Yeah, we were talking about the Shohei uh, possibility in the first hour. Uh, It does feel like if we're talking about rental assets, maybe the most lucrative or most expensive rental asset in the history of baseball. And for that reason... Wherever he goes, I'm interested because I want to see exactly what the most expensive rental asset in Major League Baseball history would actually be priced at. I don't think we can even begin to fathom it. And uh, we had the text line open today for a little while and people had immediately said, well, what do you think a trade package for Shohei to the Blue Jays would take? And my response was just (laughs) the whole team. Like, I I don't even know where you can begin to evaluate that. I'm glad that I don't have a GM position in the Blue Jays or any organization to have to evaluate a player like that. But it's a a lot. It's a lot. Well, I'm blanking on when this happened. I think it happened in the NFL, but trading entire draft class for a player or for a pick. Interesting. uh, uh, Could you trade, like, is it just pick who you want out of the prospect system? Like, would a team like the New York Mets do that, where it's like, Mm. they're so pot committed they have spent so much money what does the the cleanup hitter in double a really have to uh really give them right now when they are so pot committed on one season like you'd think that a team that was so desperate that was so uh in need of someone like Shohei Otani who of course could do everything would they be would they be willing to give up everything in their prospects prospect system for him? I'm sure someone would play that game, but you're right. I, I don't even think we can fathom it with the Blue Jays because I don't think they have the pieces to get it done. And of course, if you're making that trade, you can't trade that much off mm-hmm. your major league roster or you're not going to give them a chance to actually win. So, and that's the most important thing. It's got to be a team with a an abundance of prospects, but also one where you can take a little from the major league roster, but not pillage it in order to get it done. You know who the Angels play right before the trade deadline? 
I believe it's our Toronto Blue the Jays. The Toronto Blue Jays. So maybe Shohei comes. He spends Friday, July 28th, July 29th, July 30th here and thinks, I just would like to stay. It looks like a beautiful city. It's stunning. New Rogers Center really just hooks him. He likes the elevated bullpens. He wants to go check out the stop and the Corona patio. And he stays. He maybe, stay. Maybe just he like stay. Kawhi. He stay. We have Kawhi also, watch There's on. also like the, the pure marketing aspect of this. Like if it's just like, hey, we'll pay this price, not because we want to win baseball games, but because we want to market this player. We want the Japanese media to be mm-hmm. at all of our games. We want international media to be covering our team. We want all this different marketing uh, opportunity presented to us. <laughs> like that's part of it as well. But I just hope that he ends up on a team that is going to be playing games in October and maybe November. That's the most important thing because he's too good to have the best or the biggest baseball moment being what's striking out Mike Trout, no, World Baseball Classic. It can't be like that. It can't be that. There's more for Shohei. Plenty more. Let's uh, let's rally behind that. I did see that uh, his next greatest odds for where he would land next year are the Dodgers. And it just seems, it seems like the, the Dodgers like make the happen. most sense because they are World Series ready, plus they have all the prospects yeah. in the world. That's just... And it, they will spend. And it's also Los Angeles. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's not too to far out of the way. Far. Uh, we'll chat more Shohei Otani next week for sure. Justin and I will be on 3 to 5 again. Uh, Blair and Barker are back today in their regular spot as you tee you up for the Blue Jays tonight. Uh, but we saw a very fun thing to float around here. Messi was spotted shopping at a local grocery store in miami publix publix do you have you been, I've to, been to you've a lived in the states is publix a, publix a big thing is it a thing uh it, it's uh not really where i wasn't the publix is more like of a southern anyway okay. don't worry okay. about publix okay. too much publix talk you can buy groceries there. so he was at a grocery store and spotted just with his family like a normal human like lino messi like th- that guy the biggest famous most important person probably in the united states right now at a grocery store, shopping, and in his shopping cart, people have all taken photos and, like, zoomed in. He's got Lucky Charms, Reese Puffs, Fruit Loops. And it's just like, you are so famous going grocery shopping. It's kind of nice. Nice to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess. I mean, I, I, I'm <laughs> surprised that he felt the need to do this. Uh, I'm surprised people weren't all over him. I'm surprised he actually got the shopping done. But again, as you mentioned, the most surprising thing might be what he had in his he cart. He does have some kids. He's got some kids. But you would think that he's like straight, like steel cut oats, no sugar. Yeah, maybe not steel cut oats, but like any cereal of the sugary variety under the sun yeah, available those, for his kids. Those are the sugariest. Those are, yeah, he's got the most, sh- the sugariest for I sure. I wasn't allowed to eat those when I was a kid. I sugary options, of course, but like if you're Leo Messi, you understand mm-hmm. what treating your body does for you. Yeah. Or maybe he's one of those guys who it doesn't even matter. Yeah, maybe those guys who just, just like, like exclusively eat stone. fast food yeah, and they're still good. the best athletes yeah. out there. But he's maybe letting Messi's his kids do what guy. they want. Like, I love that. Just here, kid, do you want Lucky Charms? No problem. I'm Messi. <laughs> I'm sure it will not be as easy to grocery shop for him if he makes this routine. If he's like an every Tuesday morning, you know, guy, people will be like, I think everyone will be staking at that Publix, out the Publix waiting yeah. for his weekly visits. But I thought it was respectful that he just was like, I'm not that big of a celebrity. I can just go to the grocery store and do what I want. I think time's running out for that because his debut is soon. I believe a week from today, yeah, we'll he'll be debuting for Inner Miami. Our time is running out as well. Uh, we had a blast on Fan Drive this week from 5 to 7 and now 3 to 5. And we'll be back all week 3 to 5 to help you get on your way home. Justin Cuthbert and Ailish Forvar, Blair Barker will be 
joining you very shortly. Yeah, and next week we'll have the sports, which is fun. I love Blue Jays sports. back tonight. They'll be back all week. The sports next week. It's been a lot of fun doing it this week, but we'll have a little bit more to sink our teeth and do next we week. We can't wait. Everybody have a great weekend, and we'll chat with you on Monday. Ladies and gentlemen, the weekend. Yeah.